This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. It's their life, and it's their vision and story of their life that matters more than basically anything else. As our parents get older and maybe are less capable of several things and have greater difficulty and need some support, we begin to take on the either maternal or paternal role without them necessarily agreeing to that. And we're doing it out of, hopefully, you know, love and concern. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we're going to discuss healthy cholesterol levels. We'll hear what to do when the caregiver and loved one don't see eye to eye. Then we're going to learn about the connection between your personality characteristics and your sexual health. And lastly, we'll find out about the treatment of fibromyalgia with cannabis. But first, a little bit of business. Today's show is brought to you by Omega Alpha. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian-owned and has been GMP-certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all-natural herbs, vitamins, and minerals in their formulations. The company is site-licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit their website at omegaalphainc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team, headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings. Welcome back to the show, Gordon. Thanks for having me again, Jamie. So recently I went to the doctor for my checkup, and of course one of the things that they do is they check your cholesterol levels. At least they do when you're, when you're my age. And, uh, you know, that's one of the biggies that everybody sort of has to go through and consider uh, when you reach a certain age. So I thought it would be great if you came on the show today and, and shared your vast knowledge uh, about cholesterol and sort of natural treatments of it. Well, you know, I'm glad that we were talking about cholesterol because one of the interesting things about cholesterol, which I've always pointed out, you don't get high cholesterol levels till you're a little bit on the older side, like yeah. meaning if you measure the blood levels of your cholesterol. Now, there is lots of evidence of cholesterol deposition on your arteries, etc., even from 20-year-olds, right? But if you were to measure your blood cholesterol levels, actually, for whatever reason, the magic age, probably 40, everything starts creeping up on you. Yeah, no matter what, right? Yeah. Like, even with good uh, gene lines, it's still going to hit right. you. And, and there are some people who will wait a little bit longer, but, you know, eventually it catches up with you. So one of the things I've always asked myself is that, 
why does the cholesterol levels just all of a sudden magically go up like that? Right. right? Now, there's a lot of treatments out there to try to bring your cholesterol levels down once it's up. But the million-dollar question is what makes it start creeping up? Is, is there something that's going on that, that's making your cholesterol levels go up? Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So uh, I've been thinking about this, and one of the things that I've realized is that a lot of your cholesterol issues, right, is because the liver is cranking out more cholesterol than you're probably using, right? Mm -hmm. If you if you look at things like um, your intake of cholesterol, a young twenty year old will eat more meat than you as a forty year old, and his cholesterols don't go up, right? right? And if you estimate the amount of cholesterol by intake. Most experts will say it's roughly about 10% of your cholesterol levels you get from intake. So that means the other 90% comes, comes from neogenesis, meaning manufactured in the liver, right? right? And that's your source of most of your cholesterol. So I think there's something that goes on with the liver that cranks up the cholesterol levels. And for whatever reason, that, that control that, that says, okay, you have enough cholesterol, you don't need to crank out anymore. That stops, right? And so the, the liver is keep cranking it out so you have extra cholesterol in the blood. So one of the things I advocate for helping to control your cholesterol levels is to help clean and detoxify your liver. And ah. one of the things I will say about clean and detoxify your liver, when you say that, everybody thinks, well, how are you going to clean and detoxify your liver? You're not going to go in there with a scrubbing brush and, or a toothbrush and try to clean out the insides <laughs> of, your, of your liver, right? Yeah, but it's a nice mental image. Yeah. yeah a, <laughs> you know, but what, what I actually mean by that is to actually go, go in there and have, with using um, different herbs and different things, you can help increase the metabolism of the liver. You can help support the liver by giving it more antioxidant support. Right. So what sort of things help with liver health that would help? So you, you talk about one of the major things that everybody talks about is milk thistle, right? Yep. Right. Um, there's a whole bunch of different things. There's milk thistle, there's sami, right? And there's a whole bunch of different herbs that you could use. Things like blessed thistle, right, is also useful, right? So these are some of the things that you can use. And these are some of the things I would advocate for as part of your treatment program. I'm not saying this is the only thing you do. Right. Because in all fairness, it, it took X number of years to 40 something years for you to get to the point where the liver is cranking out cholesterol as, as if there's no tomorrow. Right. Yeah. So just doing one, one liver cleanse is not going to do is not going to stop this from happening. But what I think is you should do, if you do it on a frequent enough basis, right, you will help the liver cope and therefore you'll help control that, uh, that production of extra cholesterol. And, and, we, and we do need cholesterol, right? Because right. cholesterol is important for all sorts yeah. of reasons, right? Well, yeah, th and that's the other thing, right? Cholesterol is very important because what, one of the things that cholesterol is used for is for manufacture of things like testosterone, right, for men and women, yep. right? Um, a lot of the estrogens or progesterones, they're all based on cholesterol, right? That's the starting molecule, and then the body takes the starting molecule and does its magic with its biochemistry to crack out all these steroidal hormones, right? So you never want your cholesterol levels to go down to zero, right? Right. Now, I call it a balancing act because if you listen to a lot of the cardiovascular surgeons, the cardiovascular um, specialists, right, they want to bring your cholesterol levels as low as possible, Right to the point where you look at it and say, "Holy smokes, it's, it's really, really um, low." But you have the other people who sit back and say, "Well, we, hang on, wait a minute. We need cholesterol for everything, right? Uh, for hormonal health, right?" So it's a balancing act that you want to do. Gordon, when they're talking about bringing your cholesterol levels down, there's two types of cholesterol, and one is actually more positive than the other, right? There's HDL and LDL, right? Right. The HDL, 
is high-density lipoprotein and LDL is low-density lipoprotein. And all that is is that the cholesterol is bound to proteins, right? And the protein is bound to is called a lipoprotein, right? High-density just means that the, the stuff is a little bit heavier, and that's usually the stuff that's been shipped from the intake into the liver for it to do its other things with it. And then the one, the LDL, is the stuff that's pumped out from the liver to everywhere else where, where it's going to be used, right? Mm-hmm. And usually the LDL is considered to be the bad cholesterol. But if you think about it, the LDL is the cholesterol shuttle that is used to take it to, um, to the different cells to manufacture your testosterone. So it takes it to the testes, right, the cholesterol to the testes. The testes will then in turn manufacture testosterone, right? So these are the ovaries for it to manufacture the progesterones and the estrogens, right? So this is where the LDL comes in, all right? So it's not hard and fast. I, I know when you go out there and talk to any of the specialists, they always say it's hard and fast. Lower the LDLs, crank up the HDLs, right? Right. Uh, that in itself is a little bit on a simplistic point of view, right? But be that as it may, that's the current thinking, and that that's what everybody is going around talking about, right? So, you know, once we have that, we have to start talking about, okay, if that's the current thinking, that's the current picture that we have. What do we do when we have high cholesterol, more importantly, high LDLs? Because people right. are more concerned about high LDLs as opposed to high HDLs. Right. Right. So, so the focus, I think, for a lot of doctors is changing lifestyle to sort of monitor the amount of LDLs that you may be intaking. Right. Right. Uh, but as I said earlier on, that only accounts for ten percent right. of your total cholesterol production. Right. Tops ten percent. Right. The estimates. Right. And one of the ways to drop your ten percent is watch what you eat. Right. right? But in all fairness, ten percent or ninety percent of it is coming from the liver how much change are you going to do with that 10%, right? So, you know, but by the same token, I'm not advocating anybody to go out and eat 10 pounds of shrimp, right? Because shrimp is very high in cholesterol, right? Is it? I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I had shrimp for dinner yesterday, Gordon. You're freaking me out. Yeah, but a little bit of shrimp is not bad. It's when you want to sit down 10, and go through five pounds of shrimp all in one sitting, that's when your cholesterol levels climb through the roof, right? Yeah. Everything in moderation, my friend. Remember, what we yes. always talk moderation here, right? Absolutely. One of the ways of helping control cholesterol is exercise, yep. right? We talk about diet, all right, reduce stress, antioxidants. Because one of the things about cholesterol that makes it bad is because the, the concept is that if your cholesterol levels are high, it's going to um, form plaques. And when it forms plaques, the plaques are oxidized, right? So if you have a high intake of antioxidants, what happens is that antioxidants do two things. One of the things is that it prevents plaque formation uh, because there's a lot of evidence out there to show that, um, and, sorry, and antioxidants are also anti-inflammatories. They will have an anti-inflammatory effect. And one of the things that, that they've, they've shown out there is that if your arterial walls are damaged, it could be because of inflammation. It doesn't take much to get an inflamed arterial wall. So if your arterial walls are inflamed, what happens is the cholesterols come and all of a sudden the arterial wall is not smooth. So these cholesterol sticks to the arterial wall 
then once it sticks to the arterial wall, it, it makes it even more rough. So the white blood cells now come and get trapped in that thing. And next thing you know, it's a plaque forming because once the white blood cells get trapped, it releases more free radicals to further inflame it. And you, you can see how it builds. It's a right. positive cycle that, that happens. And then you get deposition of things like calcium, etc. Right. You get, you get blockages and then your and, arteries and, right. become brittle as right. well too, right? And so a lot of the thinking out there is that if we control the cholesterol levels, we basically help control the plaque formation. But one of the concepts I'd like to push out is not so much you control the, the cholesterol. I, I don't want it to think that I control the cholesterol and everything is hunky-dory and we don't have to worry anymore. Far from it. I, I think you should take a full approach where you look at things that deliver. You also look at antioxidants to help control the inflammation, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's interesting, a lot of people, if you're talking about cardiovascular disease, the doctors measure something called CRP, which is C-reactive protein. And that's an indicator of inflammatory response that's going on in the body, right? Mm-hmm. But that message sort of gets lost in the cholesterol story because one of the problems with inflammatory response is that you can't live on anti-inflammatories because anti-inflammatories, they're not what they call the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So you're thinking of your ibuprofen, acetylsalicylic acid. So those, those are some of the, um, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that, that people would commonly use. And the problem with any of those non-steroidal anti-inflammatories is that some of them are toxic to the liver. Some of them are toxic to the kidneys. Some of them are toxic, uh, I mean, it would cause ulcers in the stomach. Right. right. You're talking about um, pro- protective use, right? Like yeah. For prolonged use, because yeah. in all terms, cardiovascular disease, you, you're going to use anti-inflammatories for a long time. It is not something you're going to use short term. Right. right. So one of the best ways around that is to use antioxidants, plant-based antioxidants. Such right? as? Such as grapeseed extract, pine bark extract, lutein, alpha-lipoic acid, all those type of things. You have several brands out there where you can get a combination of antioxidants. And I always advocate a combination of antioxidants as opposed to one single antioxidant. Because antioxidants work on different types of free radicals. Right. right? Not one antioxidant covers every single free radical known to man. Right. So th- these are some of the things that you have to look at. So in, adi- in addition to taking the antioxidants, an- another thing you know I know and what little I know is this, that fiber is really good in dealing with cholesterol, yeah. right? Right. Fiber is good because what fiber does, it it's not, doesn't directly break down the cholesterol or, or attack the cholesterol. What it does, it inhibits the reabsorption of cholesterol that's been um, released. For example, a lot of cholesterol is broken and excreted in the um, bile. All right, and that bile is reabsorbed. That cholesterol in the bile is reabsorbed. If you have fiber, the fiber is binds to that cholesterol, so it prevents the reabsorption of it. Right, uh, and then it gets extracted through. And then, so yeah. you, you, it's a sink yeah. for for cholesterol. Right. Another thing that people have used is plant sterols, and what plant sterols do is that they have the same chemistry like like cholesterol, but they're not cholesterols, and it competes with with regular cholesterol for absorption into the body. Right. So that's why another thing. They uses plant sterols. But there are other things like niacin. Niacin has been known to inhibit the the cholesterol machinery to make cholesterols from the liver. But the problem with niacin is that it causes the flushing response. But fortunately, there's there's another type of niacin called, uh, which we call non-flushing niacin, but 
the chemical name is inositol hexaniacinate, inositol hexaniacinate. What is the flushing response? Flushing response is that your blood vessels dilate, and some people may feel, get some tingling, etc. And that's because niacin, what it does, it, it, it vasodilates. And with that, with that vasodilation, it, it makes your face all bright red. Ah, right? so, so you look and, flushed. And, Got it. Yeah, some people are not happy with that. Okay, and your the flushing response is individual dependent, but a lot of individuals do have that flushing response. There's a minority of people that don't get it, right? And if you are one of those minorities, life is good. But if you're not, you have to move to what's called a non-flushing niacin, right? right. There are things like polycosinol that there's several studies. Many studies have shown that that the polycosinol actually interferes, again, with the liver productions of cholesterol. Now, polycosinol, to be effective, has to be the sugarcane wax, from sugarcane wax, right? There's, polycosinol is a blend, is a mixture of what we call long-chain aliphatic alcohols, but it seems that the one from the sugarcane wax is the one that's most effective, right? Okay. What's the other product that you're the, the other ingredient a lot of people use is something called red rice yeast. Okay. Right. And again, there's something in there that, that inhibits the machinery to manufacture cholesterol from the liver. Fantastic. Well, you've given us a ton of fantastic information on cholesterol. Lots of food for thought and lots of things to consider to get. Uh, you'll come back again next month and, and tell us some more interesting stuff on nutraceuticals, etc.? Definitely. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll hear what to do when your caregiver and loved one don't see eye to eye on the tonic. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group seeks out the finest urban neighborhoods and designs projects to allow its residents to enjoy the benefits of both their property and the exceptional locations that they become a part of. The team surrounds itself with leading professionals and consultants and pushes them to conceive great places to live, to work, and to play. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. For more information, please visit thebenvenuto.com. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. At Caregivers Services Limited, we specialize in 12 to 24-hour private care for seniors in private homes, hospitals, or facilities. We provide the highest level of customized service for families looking for a caregiver or personal support worker. To ensure the highest quality of care and support, we limit the number of clients we service. Whether you're looking for general live-in care or have more significant needs related to mobility issues, dementia, or palliative care, Finding someone who's a great fit is most important. At Caregiver Services Limited, our highly experienced staff specialize in meeting the unique needs of 12 to 24 hour care. For more information, please visit caregiverservices.ca. Let our family help care for yours.
You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, David Bernstein, graduated from the Schulich School of Business with an MBA in 1992. He worked in marketing and senior management with Procter & Gamble and Reckett Benckiser in Toronto, Tel Aviv, Amsterdam, and London. Following in the footsteps of several family members, David entered the seniors' healthcare field, acquiring Caregiver Services Limited in 2014. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you, Jimmy. Good morning. So, uh, having lived through the situation myself, I can say that one of the biggest challenges is when a caregiver and a loved one don't necessarily see eye to eye on matters. And this is something you know that I went through with with my dad and my family. And I'm sure in your business, you see this an awful lot, right? I would say it probably occurs to one degree or another in every family. Yeah. So I, I think today maybe we should like take a step back and talk about the relationship aspects and you know the family dynamics and the uh, sort of interplay that, that comes into it when when, when these situations right. arise for all families. So what do you think is the most important thing to remember when these situations come up? I think the most important thing to remember is that the senior who you're concerned about, who you love, it's their life and it's their vision and story of their life that matters more than basically anything else. And what we typically find is that as our parents get older and maybe are less capable of several things and uh, have greater difficulty, need some support, we begin to take on the either maternal or paternal role right. without them necessarily agreeing to that. And we're doing it out of hopefully, you know, love and concern. Right. But what often happens as a, as a consequence of that is the sense of their loss of control. And they're often sort of resisting the uh, best intentions and initiatives of their children, trying to help them, let's say, uh, live more comfortably and more safely in the home or whatever it is that they have. And so it's this conflict between the children really wanting to help, but they want to do what they think, for the most part, is in their parents' interest, where you've got the aged parent who's going, whoa, not so, not so quickly. Right. And yeah, that, it's that it's that dynamic in one form or another that I see universally. Yeah, the loss of autonomy for for the loved one, you know, is probably foremost, right? Like you, you can see the physical deterioration, perhaps the, the mental, but then this is a whole other aspect to it that's being yeah. layered on, right? And it's it's at the at the root of it all is what we all strive for, which is dignity. But on the practical side, it starts with a, a loss of control, right? And when that's when that's done, it's your dignity that truly suffers. And really, at the end of the day, uh, that's something we should all try to have, uh, you know, a much stronger sense of. Yeah. So how does it how does it manifest practically? What sort of issues seem to create the loggerheads? I would say that where your parent wants to live, you may feel that it's not an appropriate place any longer as their mobility is compromised or their cognitive skills are slowing down. Uh, that's a, a big decision. The general lifestyle that they have, quite often seniors become very sedentary. Yeah. They're you know, they're they're really they, they shrink their lives if if their mobility becomes challenged to a great extent. And that accelerates degeneration in a lot of areas. And so it's often very hard for the family to get the the loved one to get out of bed, eat meals at tables, leave the apartment, right, go for a walk, do things that might be a little challenging, but are definitely in their best interests. 
Right. And, and, you know, what the studies are showing now is the social isolation, the mobility deterioration impacts on their emotional and psychological and mental uh, health as well, because that lack of contact and continuity with other people really impacts people's ability, uh, you know, their cognitive ability, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So but what you're kind of falling into, the trap we all fall into, which is very quickly we get to the practical things we wish they did better. Right. And what yeah. we haven't done is actually ask them, well, what do they want? Right. And maybe the answer they're going to give us, we don't like. Now what? Right. Yeah, exactly. Now what? And, now and, what? and But also, you know, sometimes, you know, judgment gets impaired, right? So even though they may want something, it isn't necessarily, you know, you can, it's hard to be objective. I don't, I don't necessarily believe in objectivism, but subjectively mm-hmm. sort of disseminating between their will and their desires and their actual physical and mental capabilities you know, if somebody thinks they can still get up and down the stairs, but they really can't, you know, mm-hmm. what do you do? Well, I think, firstly, you have to accept that you may not be able to control the outcome. Right. And uh, just you and I trying to problem solve this yeah. means we think we know that there's an answer out there. We just have to find it. Right. The answer might simply be do the best you can. Right. And for everybody, that might be different. The focus I would recommend is on safety, particularly things like fall risk. Yeah. And as you were alluding to earlier, quality of life. Yeah. And the kinds of things that would keep them engaged and connected to other people, having a sense of purpose, and just offering these things, trying to help these things. And it doesn't mean that they're going to accept them. Right. But it's their life. And I think more important than anything else, we need to respect it. You know, there's this uh, sort of uh, insight that I've had recently, which is that, you know, uh, pardon my uh, the moroseness of this, but you don't hear somebody at the end of a eulogy say, my mother or father did exactly what I wanted them to, and they're better off for it. Right. You don't hear yeah, that. No, you <laughs> you don't. hear them say, you hear the loved ones say, you know, that my parent maintained their dignity, got to make the choices that they wanted, and I couldn't be more proud to be their child. Absolutely. And the arguments that took place for the previous five years over wheelchair versus walker versus cane, they're important, of course, because you want them to be safe. But you know what? We're all going to make bad decisions sometimes, and we can't control it. So you identified, you know, two crucial sort of larger issues to look out for. Uh, and, and maybe that's the Waterloo. Maybe that's where maybe that's where you focus your attention as opposed to some of the smaller stuff. The first one was fall risks. Mm-hmm. So how do you what do you watch for? Well, I would I'd step back first just to reiterate because yeah. I think it's incredibly important. The person you're concerned about needs to be heard yeah. and feel heard. Because without that, it doesn't matter what you suggest that they true do for, to prevent fall risk. They're not going to listen. That's true of anybody, though, right? Exactly. I'm- but in this particular case, as our seniors age, we tend to just assume control. We right. don't ask whether we can have it. So assuming you've done a reasonable job of that, fall risk, uh, there tends to be three things that are highly correlated with fall risk. There's, uh, there's lots of lists out there, but let's stick with this three list. Yeah. Compromises to balance. Compromises to muscle weakness, particularly in the lower extremities, feet, legs. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, individuals who take more than four prescribed medications, that for some reason, the interaction of more than four medications tends to probably lead to compromises in balance, muscle weakness, dizziness, etc. So those three areas need to be focused on because from at least one book that I read recently, an amazing book called Be Mortal, if you have all three of those, there's a 100% chance you will fall in the next 12 months. Wow. And that's frightening. For sure. And so 
I would focus on that. And then the next, which is sort of the quality of life element, is really about finding purpose and connectedness and value and trying to engage in the things that they enjoy doing. And to the extent that you can contribute towards that, provide opportunities. It might be as simple as having a cat. Uh, you know, people who live alone, who have, you know, the families are very busy, the grandkids right. are very busy, they may not live nearby. And we've got, you know, grandma living at home, and we're concerned that she's not doing very much, not eating properly, not taking her meds on time, and she needs to do all those things. But you know what? Having a cat or having a pet or having plants that you take care of also meaningfully contributes to their well-being. Right. I, I think there's a psychological element to that because if you have something, a pet or a plant or whatever it is you're taking care of, I think your mindset is I have to make sure that I'm able to do that because that cat, that pet is relying on me. Therefore, I have to make sure I'm taking my meds. I have to make sure that I'm having supper. I'm making sure that I'm getting out for some fresh air because if I don't take care of myself, who's going to take care of my pet? And I think there's a huge element to that. And when you succeed at doing that, how does it feel? Right. It's an accomplishment. Absolutely. You've, you've contributed to something's life or beauty or whatever. And you get that sense out of that accepting the responsibility to care for another. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Circling back for a second to the fall risks, if and we only have time for really one more question. If we've identified those three elements which lead to the potential, great potential for fall, is there anything we can do about that as a caregiver? Well, firstly, there would be the uh, – ideally, if you can attend a uh, doctor's appointment with your loved one and discuss issues of balance and muscle weakness and the medication regimen so you can get a sense because quite often your parents are not going to tell you. Right. That they got dizzy when they stood up. Right. But they often tell doctors. So, and maybe you need to be in the other room or I don't know how that gets executed, but I think being a part of that discussion with the medical professional is very important. Number two, you can either have uh, Lynn, which is the government support system, or privately bring in an occupational therapist to evaluate the house for bars and lifts and other sorts of devices in key areas that can mitigate the risk of falls. Another big opportunity is lighting, you know, late night lighting. Right. Seniors often sleep very poorly and they get up in the middle of the night. Well, where's the lamp? Where's the light? Is there a nightlight between where they sleep and where the bathroom is? Really simple things. Now, an occupational therapist would be the professional who would do the best job of managing that. But it's those kinds of you know, approaches that I think children need to take when it comes to mitigating fall risk. Fantastic. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, we've got to take a short break. Thank you for coming in. Very welcome. When we return, we're going to learn about the connection between your personality characteristics and your sexual health on the tonic. Getting life insurance for type 2 diabetics can be a confusing and frustrating experience. Many type 2 diabetics buy life insurance products that are either way too expensive or take too long to buy. Most type 2 diabetics are surprised how affordable life insurance is. For example, a 55-year-old type 2 diabetic can get $250,000 of life insurance for only $86 a month. Remember, your information and quotes are completely confidential and there's no obligation to buy. So if you're a type 2 diabetic, take your best first step in buying life insurance by going to typetrue.ca. That's T-Y-P-E-T-R-U-E dot C-A. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. 
Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Carlisle Jansen is the founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality shop and workshop centre in Toronto. And she's the producer of the Toronto International Porn Festival. She's an author of two books, including Sex Yourself. And you can watch her TEDx Toronto talk and educational videos at carlislejansen.com. She can be reached at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show. Hello. In the November issue, you wrote about the connection between personality characteristics and sexual health. Yeah. So I <laughs> I went online. And oh, you I, did the test? I did the oh, test. Oh, that's great. What did no, you figure out? No. No, it is Uh-oh. not good. As, as, <laughs> as we go through this today, I'm going to give you some disclosures and you may or may not choose to be friends with me after. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So the article references five principal personality characteristics. What's that all about and and, and what are the characteristics? So it's come out of many, many years of research. I can't remember how many, but it's it's generally in the therapy world seen as one way of people learning about themselves, uh, learning about how you connect with a partner. Some people like to do it in their workplace so that you have a better sense of each other. Um, A lot of people do the Myers-Briggs test. Yeah, for sure. um, And this one's sort of very similar. And you know, I I don't like to look at it as, you know, the word of God, yeah. <laughs> because I think that's really dangerous. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> I What I see as is like, wow, what does the test show you and how do you react to what it shows you? Poorly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, and what, and what does, if you share it with a friend or a partner yeah. or a therapist, what do they see in that that you didn't see in yourself and say, well, actually you are like this. What do you mean I'm like that? Right. Yeah. And so you can learn more about how you are in ways that you don't notice and you could just be more aware of. It's not that anyone is bad or good. It's about using your strengths, knowing what things maybe you can work on a little bit more and understanding again, I think it's great for when you're working with or living with people, how can I how can I understand them better so that I can speak their language and we can get along. Right. I I agree with you. I mean, all joking aside, more information yeah. is better, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and if you have more insights into the way you react and behave, that can only be helpful. Yeah. All right. So there are five principal personal characteristics. And let's just go through them one by one and and talk about what they might mean and and what what they indicate. So the first one is openness to experience. Yes. So this is kind of like it states, right? You're open to new things. You're willing to be vulnerable. You think outside the box. You're often creative and curious. If you're not so high on openness, you score low on that. You're more in, you want predictability. You want concrete analysis. You like routine. You're not so creative. Okay. So this is really interesting. I think people would think that somebody who hosts their talk show would right. would score high, and I did. Yeah. But, you know, when people describe me, they describe me as a person who likes his routines, who is very set in his ways. So there's a dichotomy there, right? Like I am, awesome. and I am, yeah. I am open. I am open yeah. to ideas. Yeah. But I'm also very much the other type as well, right? Like so it, were you high on conscientiousness? No. 
Oh, interesting. Okay. Average. Not, not average. Not, yeah. Not, okay. Not low. So, but I think, you know, the fact that you have a magazine, you run a talk show, you know, you can't be lack of openness because otherwise you talk about the same right. things all the time. No, exactly. And you wouldn't be open to new ideas. But I think there's also, you need a predictability. If you're so open and so creative, that might be where maybe you're better at being an artist rather than someone who has to put out a magazine once a month. Right. <laughs> coordinate no, people. Exactly. <laughs> I, you know, there, there's, there's the commerce side, which is... Yeah. Like, really 90% of what I do, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the art stuff is the fun stuff, yeah, right? It's your sure. op- It's your opportunity to put yourself out there. Yeah, But yeah, yeah so 100. So we, we just touched upon number two, which is conscientiousness. Right. conscientiousness. So these are people who really follow socially acceptable norms. Um, they don't like to rock the boat. They control their impulses. So they're not, they're not, you know, they don't decide like, oh, I'm going to buy this thing. They think about it. They're very focused on their goals. They're reliable. The downside of that is they can be perfectionists and workaholics. On the flip side, um, if you are low in conscientiousness, you're more likely to be a procrastinator, a little bit careless, a little bit impulsive, which sounds bad, but there's, you know, again, advantages to that where you're a little more flexible and you're not so boring. (laughs) Right. So here's another one where I, I, you know, I wouldn't say I was as extreme, but I tended towards the more impulsive. Yeah. Um, Whereas, you know, some people do think that I'm a workaholic and rigid, but, but I'm a huge procrastinator. Like right. world class, actually. Okay. So, yeah. you yeah. know, that definitely speaks volumes. Okay. So the, the next one is introvert extrovert, right? Yes. Yeah. And this is one where a lot of people get confused because people think that I'm an extrovert because I like being around people and I have a lot of friends and I my job is very interpersonal. But the key is where do you recharge your battery? 100%. Where do you get your energy? And so I can be around people a lot and I love that much more so than say my partner who's who is around people but then needs to recharge a lot more by being alone. I'm actually close to the edge, but I'm, I'm more of an introvert because if I don't get my alone time, I start to really feel ungrounded and unsettled. And so I can do a lot of alone time. I can do a silent retreat. I can do all kinds yeah. of things, you know, and then kind of like, oh, I want to see some people, but that's not how I recharge. I need that time alone, even if I'm around a lot of people. So everybody presumes I'm the extrovert of all extroverts. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I can get up in front of hundreds, thousands of yeah, people and sure. talk without a script. No problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one-on-one, I can pretty much engage anybody. Yeah. But then, you know, I, I did a trade show over the weekend where I yeah. had walked around speaking to people. I had to go hide right. for three hours after. Yeah. And, and I have to be alone. Yeah. And I have to do my puzzles. Right. And nobody can talk to me. Yeah. Uh, because I absolutely recharge on my own. Yeah. I find it exhausting. Right. Uh, to yep. be on, right? Mm-hmm. So what does that say about uh, how we might behave in a sexual relationship, whether we're extroverted or introverted? Um, so those who are extroverts tend to be more sexually active. They tend to be a little bit riskier. Uh, they are less likely to have sexual dysfunction. And you know, generally, tend, uh, the one disadvantage also is that there's a bit higher sexual aggression, especially in older folks. We're huh. extroverted. And, and it correlates to age. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think they found that in older people, that was a pattern, not so much in younger people. It might be more that as we get older, um, sometimes the, the impulsiveness in our brains gets a little bit less on top of things, right? And we sort of, we, we don't hold ourselves back as much. Okay. So here's where it gets scary for me. Yeah. Agreeableness. Okay. Were you low on that? Incredibly low. Yeah. Like, I don't even know if I registered. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I'm a very disagreeable person, apparently. But anyways, let's tell everybody what that means. Okay, so if you're agreeable, you get along well with people, you're cooperative, altruistic, you're patient, you're humble, you're trusting, sensitive to other people, you know, like you might see someone who's homeless and be like, oh, wow, you know, that's really unfortunate and you might be more likely to give them some money. So if you're low on agreeableness, that what, what it would say <laughs> is that you're distant, blunt, sarcastic, and antagonistic and less cooperative. I, I think that pretty much sums it up, though, yeah. doesn't it? But I, well, I don't know. I, know. I it haven't worked ma- with you enough, but I, you know... You yeah. have to talk to your it doesn't you know, ma- it doesn't your partner mani- and your coworkers. <laughs> it doesn't it, it doesn't manifest on the show that much, but I yeah. I'm very sarcastic and, and yeah. I can be aggressive. There's no yeah. question of that. I mean, yeah. really, the test really did reflect that aspect. Yeah, of it, unfortunately. So I mean, I think that's where you're just like, hmm, okay. If yeah. I'm noticing a sense of, like I sh- I'm going to make a sarcastic comment, you know, is that really warranted? Or if I'm going to be really blunt, is that going to go over well? Yeah, but sometimes it's funny, right? Sometimes it's funny. And you know what? Again, it depends. Like, are you around people who appreciate that? Or, you know, maybe, you know, when you're around somebody who's in mourning, that's not the right time to be sarcastic. But, you know, you get that, right? Of course. Um, So. I I don't live in a cave. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I I think, again, it's all about taking it with a grain of salt. And, And for me, if that was what my thing had come up with, I'd be like, okay, so I just need to just keep that in check. Right. And just notice if I'm in a scenario where I don't want to use that. But my hunch is, is, you know, you've gotten through several years of (laughs) figuring that out. Right. Right, Exactly. And then the last one, another scary one for me is neuroticism. Yes. Okay. So it doesn't mean neurotic because a lot of people think like, oh, that means you're neurotic. No, it just means you have a lot of confidence. You have a lot of emotional stability. You tend to be sometimes a little more anxious, awkward um, and pessimistic, a little bit jealous and self-critical as opposed to people who are low on neuroticism who tend to be more calm, confident, well, a different kind of confidence, brave, which is quite comfortable in their own skin. Yeah, and I and I tend to be very hard on myself and yeah. you know hypercritical. Right, like, those those things really do manifest. Yeah, so you know that again is a way of saying like hmm, I'm being really critical on myself. Is that really warranted? Maybe I didn't do such Absolutely. a bad job on no. that, right? It, no, it's war- no, it's warranted. Charlie. Trust <laughs> Maybe me. Maybe when you're pro- procrastinating, but yeah. <laughs> in other senses, you know. So. I don't know. I, I think that we can all use a little bit of yeah, self-love and, you know, it doesn't seem to be holding you back, right? No, the self-criticalness. And, and that's the thing I think you have to look at. I, you yeah. Know, when you take these tests, particularly online, and if you've done yeah. enough of them, you, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you kind of kind of know where it's going yeah. as you're answering, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, you you know, yeah. you feel a certain way on a certain day, you're going to answer a certain yeah. way. And, yeah. if I, and if I took the test next Thursday, I might get a slightly different slightly. response. Slightly. They tend to be pretty reliable because that's one of the things with these tests is they take them with the same person over and over, maybe like five, even 10 years apart. Yeah. And they tend to be relatively consistent. But the, presumably there are some takeaway points. O- otherwise, you wouldn't have written the article. Yeah, right? well, so, so how would you sum it up? Like, what would you say? I mean, I would just say that this is, you know, if you're looking to learn more about yourself, if you, I think it's a really fun date night activity is, yeah. you know, figure out what your personality types and talk about that. Because especially when you've been together for a long time, you like, I know everything about you. You know everything about me. I know myself, whatever. And some Sometimes it helps us to learn new things to figure out, yeah, well, you know what? When you are critical, like I really notice that and I, I don't like it, you know, or sometimes you are a little too flexible and then people walk all over you, right? Yeah, <laughs> Whatever exactly. it happens to be. So I think that's where it's useful. And, you know, do the test for fun. Don't take it too seriously and see if other people are able to reflect things back to you that you hadn't noticed about yourself. Good advice. 
Thanks for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure. We'll hear back from you next month, but we've got to take a short break. When we return, we're going to learn about the treatment of fibromyalgia with cannabis on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of The Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, Rick Gilman, is a medical cannabis patient, consultant, and veteran freelance writer. He's involved in medical cannabis research and breeding projects, creating more effective medicine. He works for Canadian Cannabis Clinics as a medical outreach educator out of their Collingwood, Ontario clinic. Welcome to the show, sir. Glad to be here, Jamie. So in the November issue of Tonic, you wrote a great article uh, about a subject I didn't know about, and that is the treatment of fibromyalgia with cannabis. Yes, it's uh, exciting new research and uh, for a very mysterious condition. Um, Fibromyalgia is a chronic pain disorder. It's got no known cause in terms of what we know through research now, as well as no known cure. So it's something that that people definitely suffer from. And uh, all we can really do in the medical community right now is try and um, make them comfortable. Yeah, it's one of those uh, nebulous type, I don't know if I call it a disease or conditions, where it's just, you know, it's still, there are, it, the jury's still out amongst the medical uh, profession as to what it actually is and whether it's even recognized. But when I was yeah. practicing law, I had some clients who definitely suffered from it, so I know it's real. Yeah, and we deal with people on a daily basis as a counselor. I, I help these people, and I can assure you it's real. These, this pain is real. It's not phantom pain. And these people are suffering. And, and they're really... Um, encouraging news is that we're seeing a, a definite correlation with cannabis helping um, maintain uh, the, the pain issues. In addition to pain, what are some of the symptoms of fibromyalgia? Well, fibromyalgia affects the soft tissue of the body. So part of the challenge is it um, the symptoms overlap with a lot of other conditions, so there's a lot of misdiagnosis. Um, there tends to be widespread pain in the muscles and joints, fatigue, burning or tender areas of the body. Um, so it actually is very similar to conditions we see in things like arthritis or chronic fatigue syndrome. So diagnosis is always a challenge. What is the connection between fibromyalgia and what we call cannabinoids? 
Okay, so uh, we have, all of us have an endocannabinoid system in our body. We have two sets of receptors called C, CB1 and CB2, and they're basically the quarterbacks for the whole system. So they distribute cannabinoids through our body. Most people aren't even aware that these uh, endocannabinoid, the endocannabinoid system actually produces uh, trace amounts of cannabinoids naturally within our body. So our bodies are already programmed uh, to use this medicine uh, for our well-being. So um, that's basically what the system does. And there are some interesting theories regarding um, why cannabis is effective with uh, fibromyalgia. What, what are cannabinoids, uh, just for, for people who may not have heard us talk about sure. it before? So cannabinoids are the medicinal ingredients in the cannabis plant that have positive effects for health or, or medical conditions. There are over 100 different ones. The ones that we're, we commonly uh, refer to on a daily basis are CBD and THC, CBD being the non-psychoactive component, which can get you high, but is very effective for things like uh, inflammation and pain and, and some mental health issues. And THC we're more familiar with because people do use it recreationally as, as <laughs> right. many people are still waiting to do yeah. things to the OCS. We won't get into that. So, <laughs> so they're the two, the two um, big guns in terms of the cannabis medicine. And, and you're saying that the body actually has a system that creates these naturally within? We do. We have two masses in our in our uh, cerebellum in our brain area that uh, basically are the engine for a cannabinoid system we have cannabinoid receptors distributed throughout our body from head to toe and it's a network that that this medicine th- these uh, receptors send the medicine to these various areas which is why cannabis can help for different things anything from you know pain anywhere from your feet up to your, the top of your head it's basically the whole body system Okay, so we're, we're, we're still gathering information as to how cannabis can treat fibromyalgia, and there's a recent survey that I think shows some interesting results. Is that right? There is a survey, but before we get there, I do want to kind of point out a really interesting theory that, that has intrigued me. There's a, a renowned researcher uh, named Dr. Ethan Russo. He's a neurologist and a pharmacologist, and he's created a very interesting theory that seems to be holding some weight that um, fibromyalgia actually is the result of a deficiency in the endocannabinoid system. So in other words, people are suffering uh, fibromyalgia because the, their uh, endocannabinoid system either is not functioning or is under-functioning, uh, hmm. somewhat uh, similar to the idea of diabetes when um, you know, you're not producing insulin. So what the theory is, is once we start introducing more cannabinoids via cannabis medicine to the system, then it gets the engine running, and that's why they get great relief from it. So it's definitely uh, an interesting theory. Now, back to what you're alluding to is, is a survey, which, you know, um, fits in with this really, really interestingly. Um, the National Pain Institute um, in, in 2014 in the U.S. did a, a survey of 1,300 fibromyalgia patients, and, and the results they found were really compelling. 62% of those patients actually found that reported that cannabis was very efficient in, in helping with their fibromyalgia. Uh, an additional 33% um, said it helped somewhat, so they got some, some relief from it, and only 5% reported no uh, improvement or results from using cannabis. Now, conversely, the two main drugs used to treat fibromyalgia pharmaceutically are called Lyrica and Cymbalta. These same patients um, in this survey that were using those, only 8 to 10% reported a a very effective result from those medications, and 60% said they were no help at all. So it certainly um, points to the direction that cannabis is a much more effective medicine than the uh, current pharmaceuticals. Hmm. 
So that's that's empirical. Uh, that's an empirical survey. Right? This is these are people self-reporting. Absolutely, but it's a big it's a big sample. Like 1,300 people. I. I, I can't quote exact numbers, but I know when they do uh, like a political survey sample, there is an accuracy content of, you know, 19 out of 20 times this is, you know, uh, accurate within three degrees. I think a sample that size really does have some validity. Okay, no, no, I wasn't doubting the validity. I, I'm just, uh, I, we're talking about a survey as opposed to a study. Right. That, yeah, that, that it was, was not research. This was self-reporting, absolutely. Okay. But it still is compelling. For sure. Okay, so that's sort of the empirical evidence, but there is some knowledge as to how CBD and THC does help in the treatment. Can you sort of expand upon that? Yeah, well, part of the problem is, again, with this condition, it it manifests itself in in many different types of pain or or discomfort issues. And and it's it's a real wide spectrum of how each individual, you know, as they come in, as a counselor, I see them, I I look at the the medical chart, I see what the doctor's uh, written a prescription for, and my job is to kind of find the right medicine. So depending on how this is manifesting, we may use more CBD, we may use more THC, but quite often we find um, we use them in conjunction together for the most effective uh, result. Yeah, I mean, it seems obvious to me that the CBD would help in that it, you know, it seems to be directed at, at pain relief. It's interesting to me that the THC is valued in this treatment. How, what is it addressing there? Well, you know, again, like I was mentioning, it can manifest in so many different ways, and some people have things like uh, pain, pain-derived insomnia. So the THC helps people sleep through that, which helps your overall health when you're getting a good night's sleep. Oh, absolutely, right? If you're, uh, if, yeah. if you're sleeping, you're allowing your body to rest and regenerate, and, you know, if you're if you're not conscious, you can't feel the pain. So Right. And the other thing is um, there is a phenomenon with cannabis uh, involving CBD and THC used in conjunction. And it's something that has been studied uh, empirically, and it's called um, the entourage effect. So when you use both types of cannabis medicine in a regimen together, they actually, for some reason, and we don't know the mechanics yet, because this is new medicine, but, but the result is important. They propel each other to a more effective level where then they can achieve independently. So the CBD will work better and the THC will work better. And they just, um, it's full plant medicine. It's a very yin and yang type thing. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, there are more studies about cannabis as a treatment, and I understand there's one out of Israel that is yes, quite compelling. Yes, there is. And it's a small study. And again, we, we do have to take small samples with a grain of salt, but, but it is encouraging and it is very recent. It was just completed this August. Israel's been researching cannabis and cannabinoids for 20 years very seriously they've got a head start on the world and they definitely know a lot about it and they they are continuing to to push the barriers so they did a a long-term study of 26 fibromyalgia patients all of which each and every one reported significant improvement using medical cannabis over a long-term study and the really exciting part to me is half of them improved to the extent they were able to fully discontinue the pharmaceuticals that they were on and get full relief from cannabis. Now, uh, pharmaceuticals like Lyrica or Cymbalta have a lot of side effects, and we hear about them quite often from patients, that they really are, you know, as much as they help, they, they also cause additional issues. So it's exciting to think that cannabis may be the key to treating people with, you know, with natural plant medicine rather than pharmaceuticals. 
Yep, that is exciting. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have. Will you come back again next month and, and tell us more about Always cannabis? Always happy to help and, and educate and share and, and uh, promote cannabis medicine as, you know, again, something natural and something that's non-addictive, has no lethal dose. It's, it's uh, the future of medicine, in my uh, opinion, and I'm really happy to share that uh, with your listeners. Fantastic. Thanks again. Have a great one. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomaradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For great articles written by Carlisle Jansen and Rick Gilman, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, please email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss how the province taking over Toronto's infrastructure might be a good thing. Healthy fats, prebiotics versus probiotics, and yoga for menstrual cramps. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.